Hello, everyone. I'm Becca, dietitian by trade, mom 24-7, wife from the start, and when there's a few extra hours in the day, you might find me hitting the trails or on horseback. And I'm Kara, a therapist to women, a mom to a boy, an entrepreneur, mountain junkie, and a postpartum runner. And this is Fit for a Queen, a podcast that's devoted to the female athlete wanting to balance the teeter-totter of all the things we desire out of life as women. Performance, health, intellect, and taking time for self, even if we only get one minute out of the day. We're so excited to be bringing you the queens in the athletic world who have done just that. Okay, ladies, take a seat at your thrones, grab your crowns, and welcome to Fit for a Queen. Welcome back, Queens. Today, we're really excited. We have Dr. Donna Duffy. Um, She has a joint appointment at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and she is an associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology and director in the Center for Women's Health and Wellness in the School of Health and Human Sciences. Donna completed her PhD in the Department of Kinesiology at University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Prior to coming there, Donna completed her BS and Master's of Education at Boston University, and Donna has graduate faculty status at UN, um, whoo, UNCG, where she teaches in the athletic training program and the EDD program. Donna also coordinates the undergraduate sport coaching minor in kinesiology, and Donna has an active research agenda called the Female Behavior and Recovery After Injury and Neurotrauma Project. So you can guess what we're wanting to pick her brain over. She focuses on the neuroendocrine function and dysfunction in female athletes after a concussion, as well as the cognitive and neuromotor consequences of a concussion. Donna is also involved with research projects in the Virtual Environment for Assessment and Rehabilitation Laboratory under the direct of Dr. Chris Rea, where she's focused on neuromotor function and changes of female athletes before and after a concussion. In addition, Donna collaborates closely with Dr. Jenny Etner, Dr. Lori Weidman, Dr. Scott Ross, and Dr. Will Adams. Um, Adams. Hopefully I didn't say anybody's name incorrectly. Donna also has research collaborations with many faculty and clinicians outside of UNCG, including the Female Athlete Program, which is where I had the pleasure of hearing you speak, the CTE Center in School of Medicine at Boston, Gaelic Games for Girls at University College Cork in Cork, Ireland, with various community organizations, including Greensboro Roller Derby, Pink Concussions, the Girl Athletic Leadership Schools in Denver, and Girl Fit in Newton, Massachusetts. Donna is the research consultant for Pink Concussions and serves on their board of advisors. Donna also holds a research scientist position under Dr. Kate Ackerman at Boston Children's Hospital, and Donna was a visiting research scientist in Department of Neurology and CTE Center and School of Medicine. Donna's on the board of directors at the Women's Resource Center in Greensboro, North Carolina, and serves as the managing editor of Women in Sports and Physical Activity Journal. Donna's research on female athletes and head injuries have been published in several peer-reviewed journals, and Donna was recently quoted in the New York Times on her work related to female athletes and concussions. What do you not do, Donna? I, that sounds so <laughs> ridiculous. Like, when you were reading that, I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I just need to cut a lot of that no, out. No, <laughs> celebrate your accomplishments. Quite a woman. <laughs> Thank you. So I'm really excited because concussions, um, especially with U.S. women's soccer, really Uh came to light that, you know, um, I think there's been so much focus in football and rightfully so, but have we overlooked females? So I think first off, what would be really helpful is just define what a concussion is and how does one even confirm that they have one? 
Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. So um, a concussion, it, how you get a concussion, right? So how you get a concussion is basically um, there is a blow to the head or the body that causes the brain to move back and forth in your skull. And as a result of that movement inside your skull, the brain has different reactions. Um, some are at the chemical level, um, some are sort of at the, what I'll call like an electrical level, like the communication wires, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And basically there's a disruption there. Um, and one of the things that makes a concussive experience different for women and girls is um, the HPA axis. So one of the things that is wildly understudied is what happens when estrogen and progesterone become a part of the concussive experience because it is released from the HPA access when the brain sustains trauma. And so we know that hormones are um, quite the, the, I mean, they dictate a lot of what goes on in our bodies, just like a behavioral standpoint. And basically what happens is, is that there's this neuroendocrine cascade when the HPA access is disrupted for whatever reason. And um, when that happens, um, there can be a either a like a, a flooding, that's not the right word, but it's just sort of um, an oversaturation of these female hormones, or we can find that these female hormones aren't being produced the way that they should. Mm -hmm. So the disruption can cause either a fluctuation or... Um, they can cause the hormones to, to basically not produce and secrete the way that they're supposed to. And so one of the things that we know about that um, is that a lot of that for women is dictated by their menstrual cycle. Now, of course, birth control, varies, um, various types of birth control, especially hormonal birth control, can also influence this because that's already controlling um, those two specific hormones. But we do know um, that these particular hormones are playing a role and what can what how we can begin to differentiate between the way a female athlete and a male athlete experiences their concussive event. Now, the interesting thing about this is is that um, there are a lot when you asked about defining concussion, mm -hmm. there are, I think the last number I heard was, 26 different definitions of what a concussion is. Oh, wow. And so the, 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 the definition that we use um, is actually the CDC's definition. And we use that definition because it includes not just a bump or a blow to the head, but also a bump or a blow to the body. So when you really think about body contact, right, when you're participating in sport, your hips, for example, can go one way while your head is going the other. And so that's the reason why we really embraced and worked from the CDC's definition is because we do know that body blows can also cause the brain to move around in the skull. 
In terms of how do you diagnose a concussion, that is a really good question. And I think that clinicians and doctors, um, they would say that it is something that, quite frankly, is still being grappled with. Um, It used to be that we would talk about concussion as in different grades. So you have like a grade one concussion, for example, or grade two concussion. That process, that's really stopped. They've stopped having, the language around how do you diagnose something like that has really stopped. But to be able to say that a person has a concussion, basically the doctor will, doctors throughout the country and internationally as well, they use kind of like a systemized checklist um, and they just, you know, if you tick off the, the X number of boxes, then you're diagnosed with a concussion. Um, one of the, the biggest things about the concussive experience, that too, um, is just the recovery and rehabilitation, which is where I would say we don't have much information at all. Um, when I ask doctors, especially the ones that I work with, so if you have a, a, a a 16-year-old come in, a 16-year-old female come in to your clinic and she presents with a head injury and you determine that it's a sport-related concussion, um, what do you tell her to do? And so, you know, it becomes, well, it's the the typical stuff, like take your time, you know, um, get some cognitive rest, do this, do that. And so it's, it's a very interesting thing because some people will report that they actually don't need that. Um, and that they're, you know, they're ready to do this, this, and this, um, and sort of implementing some of those return to guidelines, right? Mm-hmm. So the return to play, return to work, return to learn, etc. Um, but it's a very interesting thing because one of the things that I am particularly interested in looking at is this idea of subconcussive trauma. So subconcussive trauma is trauma to the brain that does not result in immediate symptoms. So immediate symptoms of a concussion are typically things like dizziness, nausea, confusion. Some people may even lose consciousness. Um, But with subconcussive trauma, you're taking blows to the head or the body, but it's not resulting in anything that would disrupt your um, play or your daily activities. Mm-hmm. So it's a very interesting thing in that way because, you know, often people say that we have a concussion crisis in this country. And while I think there's some merit to that, I think what's scarier is that we have a subconcussive crisis in this country. When you really think about the number of subconcussive experiences a person could have in their sport but also just because if we know that they're that concussions themselves are underreported by athletes imagine how how much subconcussive trauma is underreported so they wake up the next day right they feel fine after they've played their football game and then they wake up the next day and they have a massive headache you know, is it dehydration? Did I not eat enough last night after my game? Did I not rehydrate the way I was supposed to? Well, no, you took a pretty big hit in the second quarter and 
at the time, you know, you just kind of stayed, you stuck with it and you played your game and you didn't have any of those sort of quote unquote normal or typical symptoms. And so now you've, this subconcussive trauma is kind of catching up with you. So um, I think that that is one of the things that is super scary, especially when it comes to diagnosing um, concussion. There is no way to diagnose subconcussive trauma. Really? I think you told, I think if I remember right in the presentation, you said sometimes they can have symptoms up to 48 hours after the insult. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Yeah. They can't. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it can take, yeah. Um, and you know, yeah, they can't, absolutely they can. Yeah. It can, it can take a while and um, for even symptoms to show up. Um, if it's behavioral for some people or people start to feel more depressive like symptoms, right? Those things might not really surface. Um, those behaviors and the changes in those behaviors, it could take weeks for that stuff to surface. So one of the things that um, I'm starting to really wonder about is if concussive experiences are a lot like other types of injury in that they need to be individually managed and they need to be individually rehabilitated because this one size fits all approach to, you know, like for example, um, going through the return to play protocol, right? Mm -hmm. Athletes will point blank tell you that they know how to take that test, <laughs> that they, they know how to pass it with an A. <laughs> right. They know what words are coming up. They know what they have to do. So there's just sort of this learned phenomenon with that. Um, and so they can, they either can pass with flying colors if they, if they want to, or they can completely bomb it, right? If they don't want to go back and play. So I think that that's the really tricky thing um, is that with concussive trauma, um, some of the standardized tests that are being used um, and quite frankly, most often used are ones that athletes, once they go through the first iteration of the, the test, they know what they need to do to get back out there. And athletes have reported in some of our research that they tell each other what's coming. <laughs> So if I, if you and I are friends and we're on a team, yeah. So if you get a concussion in week two of the season and you come back, right? So your seven to 10 day window is closed. You pass the return to play guidelines. You're back on the field. And in week four, I get a concussion that you'll tell me, this is what you need to do. This is what they're going to say, because we need you back on the field when we play on Monday afternoon. Right. And so mm -hmm. they help each other through it. They tell each other how to pass the test. And so um, it, diagnosing a concussion um, and what that means, I don't, I think, like I said, doctors and clinicians, athletic trainers, whoever might be in a position to quote unquote diagnose those things, I think that they'll tell you that sometimes it's just very obvious. Um, the student is dazed and confused and, you know, those types of things. They don't know what day it is, but I mean, they can pull them off the field because of their symptoms, right? And that's really what you're looking for, are those symptoms. But to actually diagnose a concussion, there are some scholars in this field that actually think that we should stop using that term altogether mm. because it's just this arbitrary term that doesn't really mean anything. But when 
a few, gosh, I can't remember how long ago it was, but do you remember a while ago there was sort of a shift away from concussion to TBI? Uh-huh. And then there was the little M that got put in front of it for mild TBI, and it freaked everybody out because they're like, wait, it's a brain injury? It's a traumatic brain injury? So then people stepped back away from that because it was so traumatizing. Um, and so I, I think right now, quite honestly, a lot of what's going on with diagnosing concussions in a clinical space is messy. And it's not because doctors, physicians, athletic trainers, it's not because they don't care. Um, it's That's not it at all. It's not because they're not doing right by their patients. That's not it at all. It's that we really don't, we have not standardized this language and we don't have, um, for example, normative values with the exception of the male normative values that the return to play, return to learn and return to work guidelines were based on. And the, so, the brain is so fascinating. I can remember my first experience witnessing concussion is actually with my mom. And I was, I know I was young enough not to drive, but I was off school that day and I had been doing something. I, I grew up on a farm and I walk in and my mom is sitting in my dad's chair with her breeches on and her riding boots like covered in dirt and cockleburs and I'm like what are you doing and she's like why are you off of school I'm like mom it's a holiday and then she just kind of looks at me so then I panicked and think that the horse is still out there tacked up somewhere nope she had gotten off put up all the tack came in and sat down and then it was kind of like all of a sudden she's like I have no idea where I'm at so yeah. it was a very strange experience of course having to call dad and then take her to the the hospital but you know one of the other things that you spoke to is you said that you believe that males tend to present a little bit different than females initially can you speak to that yeah so I yes I I think that that's true in terms of um in terms of the literature around this, you know, we we do know um, from the literature that um, researchers believe, some researchers believe, that um, women present with um, stronger or more exaggerated symptoms um, and that they take longer to recover, um, where male athletes um, don't report such a longer recovery time and they report sort of less symptoms. But to be honest with you, I think that that literature really needs to be looked at. And I say this because in one of the articles that um, I pulled, it was a long time ago now, um, when I was looking at studies that were male specific versus female specific versus co-sex, so males and females in the same study. Um, the interesting thing that really popped out at me when I was reading that was that men report their concussions, but women complain about their concussions. And mm. so some may think, well, that's, you know, they're saying the same thing, but I would argue no. I would argue that report when you say that someone's reporting something, it's sort of this very authoritative sort of this is what's happened to me, where females complain about their symptoms, 
um, I think that that's a different message, right? And right. so words do matter. Um, and so when we really think about that, we have to I have to wonder um, if in some of that research, there's just what I would consider to be some bias, right? And so I think that one of the things that has to be done is we really have got to look at this literature to see if in fact, symptoms do last longer for female athletes, right? Or it's just the way that the research has been written. And so we, we need to take a deep dive into that. I will say that from our own experience and our own research, that women do have different experiences. But if women are in fact taking longer to recover, we need to better understand why. And if women are in fact taking long to recover and the return to play guidelines, for example, that are based on male normative values, if they are taking longer to recover, then it would seem like those those standards, those guidelines don't fit the female athlete already mm -hmm. because it's a seven to 10 day window, right? That symptoms will just sort of spontaneously correct themselves. You know, there's not really a standardized pro, there's no standardized protocol for concussion recovery, right? It's if you need to rest, rest. I remember when I was, I got my first concussion skiing and I was coming down this trail and I was skiing with one of my friends from high school and I made a big mistake and I stopped around a blind corner to let her catch up with me. And when she came around that corner, we literally ran into each other and we both blacked out. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't remember anything. I remember seeing her and it was just like a big blue blur. And then I just remember waking up on the ground with other friends standing around us like, what happened to the two of you? Right. And so it used to be and when we were coming home, my uncle was like, don't fall asleep. You two don't fall asleep. You both got a concussion today. If you fall asleep, you're going to slip into a coma. And I'm like, and that I believed him. I mean, he was my uncle. He was a coach. He knew what he was talking about. And so, um, you know, that's the thing, right? So much has changed about what we know about concussion. But then I have to stop and say, has it really, right? Because we know now, for example, that cognitive rest and actually sleeping can help where 25 years ago, you didn't go to sleep. Um, and so there has been some advancement in that way. But in a lot of other ways, when it comes to rehabilitation and recovery, there is so much that we don't know. Now, the thing that um, really sticks out for me with regards to that is, you know, when you think about research, and you think about the implementation or just even the development, let's say, of clinical guidelines, right? So research is doing all this work. And then you want to be able to come up with outcomes and find things in your research that could be applied in a clinical setting, right? For me, that's the end goal, right? If mm -hmm. not, then what's it all for? So, but the problem is, is that it takes so much research with such a large population over such a significant period of time before any type of guidelines could ever even be considered. Right. And so when you really think about that, the female athlete right now, in my opinion, is the most vulnerable athlete out there. 
because the current guidelines that we use around female athletes and concussion shouldn't even be applied to them. And there's just too much that we don't know about what happens in the brain around that neural cascade when they take a bump or a blow to the head that's causing their brain to move around in their skull. One thing I'm curious if anybody's investigating, this is just in my clinical practice, but I have had a handful, and I say more than three or four female athletes that had no report of disordered eating until after their concussions. Have you had anybody else report anything similar to that? It's so interesting that you asked that because um, part of the work that we're, I'm beginning with Kate Ackerman and her team, Laura Moretti mm-hmm. at Boston Children's, is that very question. Because, you know, Kate and Laura, right, Kate's big area as a physician and as a researcher is RETS. And so um, Kate, within the female athlete program at Boston Children's, um, Kate has a couple of different sports nutritionists on her team. Mm-hmm. And so when I was with Kate this summer, um, I talked to Laura Moretti. Um, they call each other their work wives, which is perfect <laughs> I know for both them. of them well. <laughs> yeah. Laura and I actually talked about that. And I think it is a research project that we're going to do. Um, and it really is just, you know, clinical based work. Um, I don't know much about that, but I, I don't know anything about it. I could speculate, but I think it's irresponsible to do that. Um, so, uh, um, especially in such a public forum like this podcast, um, but I suspect that we'll know more about that in the next year or two. Great. Can't wait. So you're part of Pink Brains. We'd love to hear what Pink Brain stands for and what you guys are working for in the future. Love the name. <laughs> so um, I think, I, Rebecca, do you mean pink concussions? Oh, pink concussions. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So pink concussions. Yes. Um, I am a part of that group. I'm, hap- I'm so, so happy to be a part of that group. Catherine Sinetiker is the founder and um, ED of that group. And that particular group is truly focused on um, how females experience head injuries. Um, Kate, uh, excuse me, Catherine um, is a huge advocate in this area. And I have never known anybody who can pull together a meeting like she can. She can get the most important people in the world in one room to have a meaningful conversation about research agendas, about funding, about establishing priorities. I mean, she just really, she has this, she's got it going on. And she, I think, sees her her role sort of as sort of an advocate and educator. And so for that particular group, I um, I focus mostly with them on research. Um, and so it's interesting because um, Catherine, um, well, there's, we have something in the works at UNCG for Catherine and basically hope that um, very soon she'll be coming on board with us as a research scientist oh, great. so that she can get more involved in the research and um, so that we can have more um, of a practical application because that's where she really um, 
is really interested in doing some very important work. Love it. Yeah, definitely, definitely needed. So curious, Donna, in all your busyness, how do you live out the fit philosophy trying to balance your performance, health, intellect, and a few minutes for yourself? So I love that question, and I think (laughs) it's so important. But, you know, the interesting thing is I think – so oftentimes people talk about like a work-life balance, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But – I don't necessarily know that anything is ever really in balance when it comes to that. I think there we just on a daily basis or whenever um, we prioritize things. Right. And so um, yesterday was a really long day for me, Um, but I still managed to get in an hour of yoga. Um, I do. I have two dogs. I walk my dogs every morning. I do like a walk run with them every morning. So one of the things I try to do is sort of couple some things together. So to spend time with friends, um, especially after a very busy week, we'll often meet and go for a walk or go for a hike, um, get our dogs together to play, things like that. Um, But I do, I'm, um, I consider myself to be fortunate in this regard. I am 47 years old, don't have children, and I'm not married. So I sleep eight to nine hours a night. Um, Most of my waking hours are spent somehow engaged in my work because I absolutely love it. Um, And I do, but I do spend, you find time to spend with friends and family. And like I said, kind of coupling things together. And, um, you know, it just, I yeah, I think my life is very different some, than some of my female colleagues who have multiple children, have a partner, a spouse, have, you know, and all the other things that come along with that. Um, I don't. <laughs> so um, I've always known that I never wanted kids. And um, I just, I don't. I, like I said, I mean, yeah, I'm, I actually feel very, um, I don't know. I'm going to say the word balanced, but I, you know, I just said I didn't believe in that word really in this regard, <laughs> but I feel very fortunate in that way. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and we can't wait to hear more about what you learn and thank um, you. We'll be sure to put the links to your some of your research in the the pink concussions and um Donna, I hope you have a great day. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. I really had a good time talking to you. Uh, Same here. Okay. Bye, Queen. Bye. Today's episode is brought to you by Yours Truly. I'm excited to announce the releasing of my book, Finding Your Sweet Spot in Sport, Avoiding Relative Energy Deficit in Sport, also known as REDS, by optimizing your energy balance. Be sure to follow me on social media or go to my website, www.beccamacomble.com, to find out when the release date is set and when it'll be on Amazon. Bye, queens. For additional information on today's topic and guests, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fit for a Queen. And Hashtag Fit for a Queen. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. We can't wait for you to join us next time on Fit for a Queen. Bye, Queens.